Welcome to Health Hackers episode 19. I'm Gemma Evans, I'm a journalist here in the UK and this is my series devoted to getting inside the minds of pioneering figures in health and wellness. Today's guest is psychiatrist Dr. Drew Ramsey, who specializes in combining brain science with nutrition. He's the founder of the Brain Food Clinic in New York and the author of three books, including the best-selling Fifty Shades of Kale and the award-winning Eat Complete, the 21 Nutrients that Fuel Brain Power, Boost Weight Loss and Transform Your Health. Drew is with us for the next half an hour to discuss how we can eat to boost our mood and maybe even beat depression, which is the focus of his latest e-course. More on that equals later because Drew is very kindly giving all Health Hackers listeners a discount. So stay with us for that. I'll give you the detail a bit later in the show. Good afternoon, Drew. Thank you for being here. Good afternoon, Gemma. Thanks so much. And thanks everyone for tuning in. It's good to be with you all. So I'm going to jump straight in with this. We often hear how rates of depression and anxiety are increasing. Why is that happening? Well, I would argue part of that is we're paying closer attention, that as we pay more attention to mental health and as we think about our mental and our emotional health more carefully and more, um, uh, I would say these days, cautiously, uh, we're, we're, we're seeing rise, uh, increased rates of some disorders. But mainly, uh, I think what we're, we're seeing is just increased awareness. And think about how social media has just changed the game on how we think about and talk about depression here in the States. I think the same thing's happening in the UK and worldwide. We're just seeing a lot of uh, celebrities, a lot of uh, public figures. Um, Prince Harry is a great example, just moving the conversation forward about mental health. And so how did you personally end up mixing psychiatry with nutrition? Because traditionally, we've always viewed them as separate, haven't we? Yeah, we do. It's strange. We all know that when we don't eat well, we don't feel well. Right. And, and but it's very strange that we don't we don't connect these two fundamental ideas specifically because our, you know, we worry about how food affects our health. But somehow that we don't include our brain health and our mental health in that. At least we have it traditionally. I, I got interested in it, in it probably just out of my personal health. Uh, when I was in medical school, I was I was a low fat vegetarian. I've always really been interested in food and health. And, and, and I'm from a farm. And so I, I grow some food and. Uh, I've always really enjoyed that. And in my residency back in, gosh, this is 2000 when I moved to New York, the, the data about the omega-3 fats and how those were at least involved in the pathophysiology of depression, uh, that was just starting to evolve. And so I, uh, I, I got interested in, in, in those fats. And then I got interested in, uh, well, where do they come from? And at that point, I didn't eat fish. And I realized, well, you know, if I really want to eat for brain health, I've got to learn to eat seafood. And that really began a whole... I guess sort of academic quest to understand more around how foods related to mental health and then started talking to patients about that. And when you begin to ask patients about their food, when you're a, a, a physician, it's just, it's a really fun and interesting conversation. Um, it changes things in the clinical room. What would you say are the food pillars for a healthy mind and mood? Cause you mentioned the omega three fats there that you can get from fish. What else? Yeah. So in our clinic and, and in the e-course, uh, and in really my work with, with patients, what we hope to do is have people shift how they think about food. We really want to engage individuals as an eater and change the dialogue to a positive dialogue. No more of this fear-faced, you know, cholesterol, fat-fearing, uh, calorie-fearing conversation. We have conversations about joyfulness. 
And the idea is to increase certain food categories that we know are most tied to mental health. Uh, so leafy greens, for example, my, my book, Fifty Shades of Kale, it, it sounds like a sexy joke. And, and the goal of that book was to really capitalize on the excitement people were having <laughs> around uh, certain things and tie that to healthy eating and tie healthy eating to brain health. But the goal is to get people to embrace and think leafy greens. And why is it? Well, kale teaches us rules of brain health and eating for brain health, namely the kale is nutrient dense, so only 33 calories, more nutrients per calorie. So all the foods we recommend and the food categories we recommend, they focus on nutrient density, just more bang for your buck. They focus on rainbow vegetables, so this is just getting more colors in your diet. And then looking at um, uh, certainly things like seafood, it's a top category. Uh, some foods that are surprising to folks like nuts and beans. And then for a lot of people, just helping them focus on the foods that are bad for their mood. And the, and the dietary habits and patterns they're in that are really working against them. You mentioned the, the fats there, how important it is to have some healthy fats, because we've been told for so long to eat a low-fat diet, haven't we? Do those people, I just, do any of those people saying that, did they seem happy to you? They, didn't <laughs> seem, they don't seem like happy people to me saying that. They don't seem, do they seem joyful at the meal? Like, whoa, I can't wait to have dinner with that low-fat guru. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I know that now, you know, things are beginning to change. There's pressure from experts and scientists. But remind us or, or explain, what is the problem with avoiding fat? Like, what, what will that do to our brain if we're on this super low-fat diet? Right. So first, let's just, let's just state one thing. Uh, your brain is mainly made of fats. And they're really specialized, very long-chained fats, uh, the omega-3 fats. And then certain fats, like like the monounsaturated fats and olive oil, everyone agrees are really, really healthy. Every nutritionist and doctor on the planet is into things like olive oil. Um, and avocado, the fats in an avocado, or the fats in nuts are really, really healthy monounsaturated fats. And, and your brain does better when it has more of these fats. It, so if you don't eat a, a fatty diet, first of all, you don't absorb nutrients your brain needs. And, and I think that's a part that people often miss. When you eat a tomato and you don't put fat on it, you don't absorb lycopene. Lycopene is what you know, we call antioxidants in plants, and, and they're much more than antioxidants. We can talk about that later. But, but you absorb fewer of those. You absorb fewer of the nutrients in plants that create vitamin A. Vitamin A is a really fundamental neurotransmitter and set of molecular signals in the brain. And so avoiding fats means, first of all, you're just getting less good stuff from your food. And then the body just does, you don't function as well without, uh, without these fats. And we know that brain cells specifically function better and, and just do a better job and are healthier when they have a higher concentration or more omega-3 fats, long-chain omega-3 fats. Do you think that a low-fat diet contributes to depression and anxiety? Well, sure. A low-fat diet by nature is a high-carbohydrate diet. And so, yeah, if you want to talk about the traditional dietary pattern that looks like in the data... So this isn't just my opinion, this is if you look at the, the data, uh, epidemiological data looking at dietary pattern of populations and their incidence of depression. When you stratify a population's diet by looking at um, lower fat, higher carbohydrate diet, diets that often oddly have um, a fair amount of uh, processed foods and meats in them, um, but low fat meats, right? Lots of, lots of like skinless, boneless chicken breast. So lots of proteins, lots carbs, not a lot of fats. That's a, that, that is a modern diet, and, and those diets have a much higher uh, incidence or risk of depression. Uh, when you look at more traditional diets, diets that tend to have more fat, 
you get a, uh, a decreased risk of depression in those populations. I'm talking about like 40 to 50% decreased risk. Wow, massive, massive de decrease there. 40 to 50%, I didn't know that. Um, you mentioned the high carbohydrate diet. Let's talk a little bit about sugar because personally, when I was a teenager, about 14, 15, um, I had really bad anxiety and a nutritionist advised me to quit sugar because I think somehow we identified this pattern that whenever I had swings of high and then low blood glucose, I'd get a bit nervous. And actually, my mom ended up taking me to a hypnotherapist. And this is like back in the 90s and to, to quit sugar. And I think it worked because I don't believe I've eaten any kind of sweets since since about 1998. But anyway, um, I think quitting simple sugars I need to have a better diet all around really um, help with the anxiety. So how do you advise your patients in general when it comes to sugar? Do you tell them to quit it all or do you just tell them to kind of taper it off a bit? Well, so I think about what you, uh, your story is a great story. First of all, you linked, you know, what we think it sounds strange that, that your anxiety was linked to your diet, but it, but it isn't in the sense that your body anxiety often is about cues and physical cues and everyone knows that when we get hungry you know are you in like a calm good happy state like no you're anxious your brain's like i need to be fed soon <laughs> so um all carbohydrates are sugars and so if you're drinking pineapple juice to, that's like having a hard candy if you're um, having milk chocolate or white chocolate um you know versus dark chocolate those are those are very different um foods or sweets in terms of their carbohydrate content. So I, I look overall at someone's carbohydrate, the quality of their carbohydrates and the along with the quality of their fats and try and address that and then understand a lot of times with sugars, they're, they're very, some people call them addictive. I, I'm a psychiatrist. I work with a lot of people who have, you know, addictions to drugs that make sugar look like uh, it's, sugar is not a hard addiction to beat in a certain way for some people certainly it is but i just i don't like perpetuating that myth that sugar is addictive because like sugar is not addictive sugar is a bad habit it feels addictive but you know you talk to somebody who's smoking crack it's like sugar's a joke <laughs> you can get out of a sugar addiction pretty fast so anyway but it is a habit forming very very exciting very delicious thing that we love and so what we try and do is find ways, again, for people to have joyfulness around sugar. Because what happens a lot of times is people, you know, it's their quote unquote cheat food. And so the only time you're enjoying your, your uh, dessert, you're cheating. Well, I, I never wanted to be a cheater. I'm not going to raise my kids to be a cheater. I'm not going to advise my patients that they should get pleasure by cheating. That never made sense to me. And, and so what we try to do is really work to decrease the... Um, that signal of, of real, like that sugar satiation signal by slowing it down a little bit, by helping people work on their mindfulness in eating that, you know, you can have a really delicious, awesome experience with a piece of dark chocolate if you sit down and think about it for a little while. You can also gobble down a bar of dark chocolate. So that, that's really about taking mindfulness from, you know, being a meaningless wellness term and into an active practice of really centering down with the food. Um, I don't eat a lot of sugar either. And, you know, weird things start to taste sweet. Like I don't have sugar in my coffee anymore because cream, it tastes sweet to me. It's got this, because it, yeah. it is, it has a natural sweetness to it. Yeah. 
Um, although I, I do remember though in my 20s when I was eating this healthy diet and I was balancing my blood glucose levels as well as I could, I did experience a couple of anxiety relapses. So I sometimes wonder if there was something else I could have been doing with my diet. Do you have any other tips for people who want to eat to beat anxiety? I guess good fats is going to be one. And your, your good fats is going to be one. Um, You're going to say kale? Panic attack really interests me because I think there's the whole body cue panic attack and then there's the whole literature about panic attack and how it relates to our psychology and psychodynamics. If you look at like the clinical trials and anxiety and panic, but panic specifically, you know, the medications work and psychotherapy seem to work, but, but and there's not really any literature on diet and panic disorder, which is really weird, very little, but um, there's a, a, a study of psychodynamic psychotherapy really looking at some of the underlying like psychological causes of panic. So I, I make sure and kind of try to attend to those types of things. In terms of food, like when people have relapses of symptoms, I tell people to really look at the last few weeks and, 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 and kind of reestablish a set of goals. I, I also remind people that all mental health disorders are what we call kind of relapsing and remitting. And so if somebody goes from having panic attacks every week to having one panic attack a year or one panic attack every two or three years, like I'm not going to stop the victory lap dance because while panic attacks are horrible, that's an individual who really is functioning and has a disorder that they're managing. It's kind of like, I don't know. It's like if you're susceptible to colds, mm. you know, helping you go from. Is it kind of like it never really is going to go. You just manage it and you just get good at managing it. You know, that's a really, I mean, that's a really good question. And that's a really personal question. So I could help you answer that. And, 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 um, and people can help themselves answer that. But there, of people listening, there are folks who have been probably talking to a therapist once a week for their whole lives, and it really keeps them well. And for other individuals, they don't need that kind of treatment. They could you know, take Zoloft 50 milligrams sertraline and, and, and feel fine. And, and so I really encourage everybody to not generalize when it comes to our mental health and to think in a very personal way. And so and also where your personal goals are. For some individuals, having a panic attack every five years is a real victory. For other individuals, it, it, it causes them to carry medication in their purse everywhere and to feel at any moment it could happen. And so, um, yeah. So when, really you, when, you, when you're out socially and you meet them and you're at a, like a dinner party or something, I bet a lot of people when they know what you do, will confide in you and say, will tell you about their dreams, their anxiety, their depression. In those moments, do you immediately think, I bet it's something to do with their diet? Like, do you automatically think, okay, we need to look at this? No, no, I mean, I'm a, I'm a classically trained psychiatrist. And so first of all, I love those moments. When I became a psychiatrist, I was kind of, I'm, I'm from very rural America where mental health and psychiatry is like, those people are strange. And so I was kind of nervous at parties at first. And then uh, I trained in New York. And then you go to a party and you're like, oh, you're a psychiatrist. And then, you know, and then you start getting all these really like meaningful moments. You know, you'll be at some random party in, in, in a hallway and someone kind of looks to the left, looks to the right. And they share something with you really personal and ask you really personal questions so about their own life. And so it's really been wonderful. I, I, I think I always think about diet in terms of people because that's just what I'm interested in. Um, but when I meet an individual who's having mental health symptoms, first thing I think of is safety and where I meet them. So where are they in the trajectory? Are they, because I meet a lot of people who are on the edge of something. Um, 
when I am with people and safety is not an issue, I really think primarily around what are the symptoms they're having. And in psychiatry in America, we, and, and in the UK, we have this what's called biopsychosocial model. And I think about the biology of it in terms of their family history, whatever I can understand of their genetics. Certainly food comes into that. So if I hear a story of someone and they're an okay eater versus I hear somebody and I met an individual once who only ate eggs and drank apple juice. And he had a psychosis caused by B vitamin deficiencies. I mean, so that's a, wow. you know, so that's an individual where like, you know, uh, and so it's kind of that first initial of assessing someone of, okay, is it reasonable to be concerned about that? If I meet a vegan who's about to get pregnant, like diet becomes, you know, my number one bullet point with that individual to make sure that they're taking the supplements that must be taken uh, to protect the baby and the mom. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm always thinking about diet, but I really, uh, so we think biologically, bio, the social is sort of what's going on in the individual's immediate social environment. And then the psychological, biopsychosocial, the psychological being, you know, who is this individual? How does their defenses work? What's going on in their conscious and unconscious minds? So, you know, earlier when you said you used to be a low fat vegetarian, I'm assuming you're no longer low fat, but are you, are you still veggie or did you quit that? I, I quit, yes, I started. So after the omega-3 fats uh, and need, realizing I need to eat seafood, I, I, I started eating more seafood and starting off with like a baked white fish with lots of lemon and some shrimp and worked my way up to salmon. Now I eat everything and like it, not just forcing myself. Because again, we believe in food joyfulness. If I didn't like it, I wouldn't eat it. <laughs> um, and uh, um, You mentioned also the psychosis triggered by... A vitamin D, vitamin B deficiency. Yeah, I mean, so psychosis can be triggered by a few things. Gluten, yeah, gluten. tell us, because I want to know. <laughs> uh, no. I don't know what deficiencies cause that. Certainly causes it. Um, and, and so, you know, I think the question is, diet is, uh, uh, to your question, you know, diet, diet is a key part of it. And all I, I really ask in my work is, one, that we don't stigmatize people's answers to their mental health. Because I have lots of patients who their diet's awesome, and I'm really thankful there's lithium and Zoloft and psychotherapy and other treatments. Um, but to have it be part of the conversation, and so you know, I like the way you frame it of what food categories or food should people think about with anxiety when we relapse or we have more symptoms. How do we think about food differently? And and what I love is that individuals are so good at this. People also come to my office and they're like, oh, I don't know. And then they proceed to tell me like, you know, I started eating a lot more Chinese food. I've been more stressed at work. I don't know what happened. I've been just having been eating my leafy greens and I had this panic attack. And it's like, you know, that, that they have the answer right there that, you know, and maybe it's not the full, the, the full solution, but pe- people often know um, when their diet is part of the problem. So you're, I mean, clearly you believe that there's a place for drugs and anybody listening should rest assured that you're not suggesting anybody stops taking their medication and, and eats kale. Yeah, stuff. I always hit that. Like, what, what, Jim, why is that? You're a health journalist. I'm, I'm really curious is that, you know, I love bringing zucchini into the conversation, but somehow people think that means I'm talking about Zoloft. And that to talk to, meaning that somehow it's a comment on like mother meds work or that you should take meds or... All in my work I'm trying to suggest is that just like um, we talk about cardiology and diet, we talk about you know gut health and diet, the other fields of medicine, we at least talk about it. In mental health, we gotta talk about it because it's part of the puzzle. 
And, um, but I'm curious for you as journalists, that then leads to a conversation of like, whether meds work and whether you can replace meds with food and it just feels very stigmatizing to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, your, your e-course is called eating, eat to beat depression, right? So mm -hmm. automatically that's going to raise a question of, wow, can, can we eat to eradicate depression? But I think, mm -hmm. you know, from talking to you, I'm getting a much better sense that it's, it's about eating to support mental health, support brain function, which yeah. is going to contribute to potentially a better outcome with your dealing of depression, whether that's caused by genetics or a traumatic event in your life or something it's, else. It's a good point. It, is, it is a course meant to, that induces that sort of idea, the title does. And so I want to explain that because it's a really, it's a good point. I think we can beat depression. And I think we do a crappy job beating depression. And I think millions of people are suffering with undertreated or untreated depression. And so I think part of that is I want to inspire people that you can. Um, I see people beat depression all the time with exercise, with food. Number one antidepressant I see is human love. Like nothing gets people less depressed than a partner. I see people beat depression with uh, getting a pet. I see people beat depression by taking all kinds of different medicines from antidepressants to anti-anxieties to, and I see people beat depression by doing really deep and good psychotherapy work to change how they behave and how they understand themselves. And so uh, I just also, you know, see that we don't talk about food. Nobody ever asks about it and it, and it matters when it comes to mental health, so. So for you, the, the food and the diet is another tool in the toolbox. For sure. And, it, and it's a fun tool. I, I, I'm of the opinion also that it helps the mental health treatment because it's, you know, so often we focus on pathology. Right? You come in and, and it's not about like, let's record your triumphs. Let's talk about how you're doing great. So, you know, we, we talk about your symptoms and I'm there to fix your symptoms. So it's nice to have the food be a part of the conversation for a number of reasons. One, it, it's, it's more fun. I think, I mean, I, I just like, like hearing about what people are cooking and how they're taking care of themselves or how they're struggling with that and coming up with some fun, you know, sometimes I don't have an answer to why someone's struggling, but I often have a good recipe. <laughs> and um, the other is that it empowers people to do something for themselves. And it's something you're already doing. Since you're already eating, it's not so hard to shift that. If I need you to start socializing because you have and anxiety disorder, that's hard. Or I need just, you know, we, we wanna have a, a relationship, so you need to start dating. And it's not something you're doing now, that's, that's a big ask. You need to start taking medications. That's not something you actively, you're not, you know, patients don't see that as doing that sort of for themselves in a certain way, right? It's not something that they do, it's something they take. And so that's why I also like food. It's like mm -hmm. exercise, it's something that you do to really keep your mental health in good shape. Okay, I'm gonna ask something that might sound like a really, stupid question because i don't know if i've ever if i've ever dealt with this how do you know if you're depressed well, that's a really good question i mean again i think it's a really individual um response and i think it varies between men and women i work with a lot of men and so you know we talk about depression being something that's sad and tearful and uh, sensitive and um, feeling suicidal, those kind of things. Like some men, that's not what it looks like. It looks like I was talking to a man today and I saw, you know, I think you're a little depressed. He's like, I'm not depressed. And then he said, you know, I think I really am. <laughs> but it doesn't feel to him like sad. It feels to him like 
like he gets disorganized and isolated and he stops reaching out he stops having fun he kind of forgets why life's worth living mm. and, and and so i look at um function and encourage people to look at function in terms of uh if you look at all diagnostic criteria in mental health we look at work and love occupational and social functioning are you engaged in meaningful work you don't have to like love every minute of your job, but like something that you feel attached to or satisfied with. And, and that's really variable um, for people in terms of what that is. Uh, um, and, and are you engaged socially in a way that's fulfilling to you? you know, I, I kind of push that a little bit. Of, I, I really want to see individuals engaged in, I talk re about like the, the highest part of your license. And I think the highest part of our license as humans is creating love and creating community and loving communities. And so, I really do pay attention to whether people are engaged in that. Not that everyone needs to be like volunteering every minute, but that you, you have an orientation or a sense about that in your personal life. And then hopefully for individuals in a slightly more than just um, individual life in a, in a more of a community style. So that. So if you, if you felt like you might be a bit depressed and you're listening to this podcast and it's the first time that you've ever thought of combining the idea of mental health with, nutrition and would you be looking to introduce the kind of food groups that you mentioned or do you have to be a bit more specific between someone between who has anxiety to depression or is the advice going to be the same whole foods keep blood sugar level balanced leafy greens oily fish well, I mean, yeah i think that basic advice you're probably going to get from all of us these days you know if, if you look at kind of the general dietary advice like everybody is going to be suggesting leafy greens for most people most americans and most uh folks in the uk um you know fewer fewer processed foods fewer fried foods for fewer simple carbs more seafood more plants i think that where the specificity comes in is in somebody's sort of dietary pattern and then some of the psychology of their eating in terms of what foods they like what foods they oh hi sweetheart that was that that was a little boy like a little bit of daddy, sorry. Oh, you've had a visitor. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering who's daddy talking to? That funny uh, voice coming right, up. Sorry, I wasn't, sorry, Jim, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> Got to look this all the way. Um, uh, little visitor stuck up. Um, the, the specificity, I think, for people, for example, with, with anxiety or panic disorder begins to look at it when and where they eat to understand a little bit more of their individuality in terms of do they need a more specialized plan of, um, you know, if it's an executive who's traveling a lot, I, that, that individual needs a little bit more assistance, I think, with their diet and the planning it out than somebody who, um, uh, you know, ha has something really stable going on nutritionally. Um, Do you think all mental health issues, whether it's OCD, ADHD, do you think they could all be helped by a better nourished brain? Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that should be a controversial issue. I mean, I think we can all agree that mental health depends on brain health and brain health depends on nutrition. And so... I mean, I mean it just sounds really logical. It just... Yeah, it, it, and so... It, 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 that part shouldn't be controversial. I think what happens is it becomes this like polarized debate between like wellness and psychiatry is what I've seen. And I really love the wellness world and I love psychiatry. So I try to have my foot really both in both, firmly in both worlds. I feel great after yoga class. I love acupuncture. I get massages. I love exercise. I think that's wonderful that people are paying attention to the wellness, but it's strange to me that somehow like 
that's become a controversial statement that mental health conditions can be helped by nourishing foods. And I think it's because we become polarized where people then say, well, if you have a mental health condition, it must be because you're not eating right. And, and I mean, yeah, that would be the extreme that you're trying to avoid, really, because yeah, I like to, I like to, avoid, I like to avoid extremes when it comes to mental health, and because that's what creates one of the factors that creates stigma. We make the assumption that that our truth about our mental health is your truth about your mental health, and that ain't how mental health works. And and when when you have the privileges I've had to really sit with lots and lots of people who talk about depression or feel it differently or feel differently about medications or um, it just humbles you and it gives you the perspective that we need to all take a step back and ask more questions about each other. Because when we start making the assumptions, it's just, it, it, that's what I think kills more people than anything when it comes to mental health is that we just, I want to get your thoughts on kefir. Have you heard of kefir? It's a fermented wheat. Yeah, yeah. My most recent book, all the, all the smoothies use uh, kefir. Love, I love a bit of kefir. Um, I had a gut health author on the show who actually makes goat's milk kefir. And um, she had been writing about how it could potentially help people with depression. So I wondered what your views were on, you know, kind of repopulating the microbiome to potentially benefit the mind in that, kind of gut brain axis. Yeah, yeah, no, it's exciting. I mean, that's really a frontier in mental health these days. I think it's it's hit a kind of sensational hype where when you think about 10 years ago, what was the advice we had about gut health? Eat more fermented foods. Maybe if you've had something bad, like, you know, antibiotics, or you've been ill or you're really struggling, maybe take some high quality probiotic and eat more probiotic or prebiotic foods. You know, not just Jerusalem artichokes, but <laughs> lots of plants and a diverse Right? That was our advice 10 years ago, and that's still our advice, I think, in general, that, that while there's a lot of science, there was actually a trial for a probiotic used to, to treat clinical depression uh, about a year ago that came out that was positive. Um, you know, some quibbles about the trial, but anything that comes out like that, there's always going to be quibbles. But uh, um, one of the things, certainly when you talk about what do we look to increase, and especially around anxiety, we have an interest in anxiety. If you look at the data around fermented foods, it's much more around anxiety. But um, what, what food categories do we want to increase in most individuals are fermented foods. Most people besides like low fat, sugar filled yogurt, they don't eat fermented foods. And so then there are lots of great ones. I love when people are drinking alcohol to switch them over to kombucha. I love, you know, we had a couple goats and made some goat's milk kefir. And yeah, and sauerkraut. And I'm trying sauerkraut. to think of the other fermented foods. I'm going to make sauerkraut with my daughter later today because everybody, knows, everybody listening is going to make some sauerkraut. Just cabbage salt. Are you, and are, you in, are you on your farm right now? If nobody, if everybody's listening, Dr. Drew lives on a farm, which is probably why he had goats and is able to make sauerkraut today. And I imagine you're very healthy on your farm. Oh, yeah, if anybody's watching the video right now, Dr. Drew has turned the camera around and we're looking out at a stunning view. <laughs> if you're listening to the podcast, you've got to go to healthhackers.uk and look at the video version of this episode. That looks beautiful. I bet that's good for the mind living there. Um, you know, it's rural America. <laughs> oh, it's okay. Um, I want to quickly ask you about uh, nootropics or cognitive enhancers, supplements. Now, 
Where do you stand on supplements? I've tried, I've experimented with a few kind of cognitive enhancers and didn't really find any to be useful apart from something called L-theanine, uh, which was, a, which induced like a calm state. Think about in terms of, I don't use it, but I heard colleagues using it for anxiety and I wonder if it helped your cognition because it helped something about anxiety, which if you, oh. if you know, like the number one disruptor of cognition for most people, it's anxiety. Because as we get more anxious, our cognitive ability, just, you know, as you're glancing around, as your mind is glancing around anxiously and worried, it's hard for us to focus and be creative and calm and inspired. And so, but anyway. No yeah, I can with that one, but I, I, I've tried loads of others and just had no effect at all. But like you say, every single person is so unique and, you know, I wouldn't recommend anyone try everything that I've tried. But what about, I mean, where do you stand on supplements and cognitive enhancers? Well, so in my first book, uh, The Happiness Diet, I, uh, my co-author and I came up with a list of um, 100 reasons not to take supplements for nutrition. And, and, and so I'm, I'm, I don't like to say I'm anti-anything, but I'm pretty anti-supplement. I mean, I certainly will give patients omega-3 supplements if they don't eat seafood or if they have a resistant depression. I give people L-methylfolate. Um, I, I, you know, if someone has an iron deficiency or B12 deficiency or vitamin D deficiency, for sure. I mean, I'm a doctor. If you have a deficiency, I'll supplement you. But I think a lot of people, what I see happen with supplements is people are like chasing something. They spend a lot, waste a lot, I'm going to argue, money. And they, they put a lot of hope in, uh, put a lot of faith in placebo effect. That you take something you're looking for good results. You get some good results because you're paying more attention to your health. And, you know, and, it, and so, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm 44 years old. I don't take any supplements. Uh, and I really haven't for most of my life. Maybe I take a little fish oil every now and then. And again, we're all different, but I just think there's a lot of hype. If you want to improve your brain, you want to improve your mental health, you want to improve your longevity there are three really take home science backed everybody agrees on ways to do that you should exercise and you probably add a little more intensity to your exercise and based on more recent data you should exercise with other people so this is where this data looking at things like tennis versus jogging so if you're a runner start running with people so because the things that help us live longer and have bigger brains are diet eating well exercising and social connectivity. And if that's like 100% dialed in for you, it's like, I'm just gonna ask you, listener, is that 100% dialed in for you? Because for most of us, it's We've got eating, social connectivity, and exercising. Yeah, I'd sort of sleep on that list. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I mean, you in the UK have Dr. Chatterjee who talks about those four pillars of health, but there, there's something about when, when I, see people chasing nootropics and supplements, you know, uh, and I, I guess I put people in a lot of nootropics because I treat people with stimulants. And so I have a lot of experience giving people a substance that improves their cognitive functioning. And I don't know, I have to tell you that, that, that it works for some people, but, um, you know, the, the one with the most data by far, I would say is rhodiola rosea. And, um, you know, and having put a number of patients on that, the results are kind of, you know, I think like your results, Gemma, like, not well, like, um, wow. A calming effect? Rhodiola, really? Rhodiola has a, Rhodiola, Rhodiola Rosia is, a, is an adaptogen and it has a stimulating effect. 
and for for some people. So there's like things like maca maca and caffeine. And so would rhodiola be good for feeling happier if you're depressed? Well, if you want to talk about integrative, so I put this in the list of like, what's the stuff in the natural world that has data, it might help people with depression. So rhodiola rosea is on that list, although not a lot of data, probably one trial. The number one natural supplement or natural substance with data behind it is St. John's Word. St. John's Word had, at my last count, 36, probably more than that now, clinical trials, not all positive, but enough so the biggest meta-analysis of St. John's Word said that its efficacy was equal to the serotonin medications like Prozac, and it had fewer side effects. So, you know, if I, but that's a little bit how I work. Like, yes, I want to dial in the diet. If somebody only wants natural stuff, I want to give them the evidence-based option. And then, um, you know, make, make sure that people get complete treatment. And really, your advice would be to anybody, if they're struggling, just go and see a doctor now. The first part, what I found, I mean, I don't know how your experience with this, but what I found is so interesting is people, have, it's not interesting, it's sad, really. People have, take so long to get help. We all do. And, um, I, and I think I have such a strange notion of how mental health works. I mean, I've been in mental health treatment since I was in medical school. And, and, and the reasoning is it just makes me better. I mean, if my career has really done much better, my marriage is better, I'm a better dad because I have a, a, a place and it doesn't have to be a, a therapist, mine is, but I, I have a place to sit and think about myself, reflect on myself, hold myself accountable every week. And, and a lot of people you know, don't think that, oh, that's a mental health treatment. Like, no, no, it is. Because <laughs> without that, my mood is lower, I'm more anxious, I'm less generative, I'm less loving. I'm not gonna meet your question, would I meet criteria for depression, am I depressed? I don't think I would, I function really well. But, but I would encourage anybody listening that if you have questions, get into a conversation. It could be your pastor or it could be a health coach or it could be your, um, I like psychiatrists because we see a lot of diversity. It could be a you know, psychologist, social worker. Have a, have, start having that conversation. Thank you. So we are up on time, but I just want to know one more thing. It's nearly dinner time here in the UK. And if I was going to put together the perfect meal that would make me calm and happy and more intelligent and have a rocket fuel brain, what would be a good dinner for somebody to eat? All right, well, Jeff, you know, I mean, this, if you want to go, uh, you want to make me walk the talk here, then I'm going to have to start. I'm going to tell you, the first thing that pops in my head is I really want to make sure that Gemma has an interesting dessert tonight that doesn't give her sugar craziness or anxiety. You know, I'm going to call it craziness, but gives her that feeling of um, like deliciousness. But we'll get to dessert in a minute. Now, will you tell me a few, first of all, a few of your, your, your favorite foods to, to oh, eat? Well, I do love wild sockeye salmon. In fact, I love all fish. Uh, apart so, so you're looking for maybe a little salmon? Fish, I, do, I do like grass-fed, like a good grass-fed red meat, maybe a lamb or a a beef. I like what I like chicken too. I mean, there's not much I don't like. Well, so for most people, when I hear that, um, that nice diversity in the proteins, usually the one that we eat the least is the seafood. And so if they're interested, you like the bivalves, mussel clams and oysters. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then I would probably think that tonight I would probably send you for most, uh, most frites maybe. I mean, French fries aren't the best, but it's, it's Friday. So why not? Um, but in terms of preparing it at my house, 
Probably muscles. You never prepared. Have you ever prepared? I don't know. My, I don't know if my supermarket sells them. Oh, great! So now we've got a really nice Friday plan for you. Because now, dinner <laughs> is it just you? It's going to be me and my husband. He oh, does. Great. He doesn't eat fish, but I'm going to try and get him on a fish oil now. No, I don't know. If that's fair. Does he like mussels? No, he doesn't like any fish. All right. So. As you can see, this is how I'm going to put it, which is, <laughs> I'm going to reverse course. You definitely shouldn't do seafood then because it's Friday night. You're looking to have a nice meal with your husband. Yeah. He doesn't like fish and seafood. So I would think something like a grass-fed beef, or if you want to get him moving on to seafood, which might be in a treatment, like a long-term goal for you, if you're concerned about yourself and your husband's health, you could do fish oil, but... You know, is there any seafood he does like? Does he like shrimp? Does he like tuna poke? Does he like... Nothing. Um, but I wouldn't tackle that on Friday night. So then I would think probably <laughs> something in... Uh, what are his favorite and your favorite vegetables? Uh, oh, I love I love all vegetables. He, um, he kind of eats all the veggies that I cook, which can be... I mean, downstairs right now, we've got some collard greens, some red cabbage, some cauliflower, sweet potatoes... Could do all of those. Yeah, I think we I probably, um, I like to do a mashed cauliflower with a little turmeric and have that go with uh, a nice little grass fed steak if you have it. And then I probably do like the red, I think you said red cabbage. Mm. I think I'd like probably um, soften that up a little bit. It was just like a little bit of uh, olive oil and you know whatever kind of herbs or spices you like that's simple. And I like to kind of pan sear it. As like a little kind of warm cabbage salad. And then I'd probably do one of the other vegetables, probably not the sweet potato, but to get another color on that plate, or maybe just do like a simple, like a little simple green side salad. Mm -hmm. So would you leave the carb out, the carbohydrate there? I guess you got the carbs. The carbs on the plate. You've got those, you've got those um, that mashed cauliflower is your carbohydrate. Yeah. You're, you're increasing the nutrient density of instead of having a mashed potato, you're, you're getting more, gosh, sort of more B6, more fiber, Okay, well, this sounds like a good meal that everybody can learn from. So we've got some good fats there. We've got some veggies. And like, it sounds also that you're wanting just a little bit more of a carb. So I, I would probably then ask you, like, what, what do you think? And as you're imagining that meal, you well, see that... I just noticed that there wasn't, there wasn't a, you know, a, a, a kind of a complex carb there. Well, there was the veggies, but there wasn't the kind of traditional carb that you think of for that. But that's okay. What that's, carb do you think? I, it's funny because I think about that as like the, yeah... That's that's probably a, a good point that um, maybe once a week there'll be some pasta on that plate. Um, I'm a big fan of like a black beans and brown rice meal is a very simple, low budget meal. I'm a big fan of like lentils, but in terms mm -hmm. of like yeah, putting a big carb on that plate, a dinner roll, you won't really see a lot of that in my eating. If, if you look through that's, eat that's fine. I mean, that's the same with mine. I mean, I've been fairly low carb a, a couple of I spent four years in nutritional ketosis at one point, you know, in my... That's quest. impressive. I, I keep thinking, Jim, oh, should I do nutritional ketosis? I've been wondering whether I should or not. What do you think? Let's not talk about it now. But it's, it okay. depends what your reasons Next are. Next time. I'm, I'm going to send you my, my article on healthhackers.uk where I talked all about my four-year or three or four-year experience in nutritional ketosis and why I bothered. And, and I really stuck to it. Like I blood tested every day. I wasn't just like, oh yeah, I'm in ketosis. No, I really yeah. wish I was. Um, okay, Drew, it has, been, it has been so fascinating to talk to you. We are over time, but before we go, I just want to let everybody know that, that you have kindly offered a 15% discount to all Health Hackers listeners who want to sign up for your Eat to Beat Depression e-course. 
Listeners, you've got to check out the show notes to this episode on healthhackers.uk and then you follow a link. It'll all make sense when you get there. Or follow me on Twitter at Gemma Evans and I'll tweet the link too. Drew, where can people find you on social media? Hey everybody, I'm at Drew Ramsey MD. I'm on Instagram where I'm trying to post every day, but I'm just busy. But I post mostly on Instagram, Facebook is Drew Ramsey MD, and then you can learn more about the course and and about my work in our clinic at DrewRamseyMD.com. Brilliant. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. I hope I hope this helped you add more lentils, clams, mussels, salmon, leafy greens, uh, almonds, walnuts you know, cabbage and other fun stuff like that to your diet to feed your brain. And Gemma, thanks so much for all the work you do spreading, uh, spreading, spreading out a healthful evidence-based message. Thank you. Well, if you are listening on iTunes, I would love it if you left me a review and subscribe to Health Hackers, provided you enjoyed the podcast. Um, until next time, everybody. Bye-bye.